Thank you for being here. It's encouraging to see you. Thank you for your faithfulness to this body, for your commitment to being here. It's encouraging to not only me this morning, but many others as well. If you look in your bulletin, let me just direct us to a few announcements for this upcoming week that may be pertinent to your schedule. I would encourage you to make plans to be here at 6.30 for our midweek service on Wednesday evening. It's been a wonderful time. We start with the study of the Word and look at what we're going to study this morning, Mark 5, 21 through 43, and then we have a simple meal following that. It's an excellent opportunity to build relationships and look more deeply into the Lord's Word. So make plans for that. Next Sunday, you see there, we're going to be preaching from Mark 6, 1 through 6. I would encourage you to meditate on that passage this week, that you might allow the Lord to begin opening your eyes to the truth and glory of that passage. Next week, we will have the Lord's Supper. And then on uh, Friday, September 9th, what is not in your bulletin there, but Friday, September 9th, uh, ladies, if you are interested, at 10 a.m. at Miss Hicks' house, their ladies' Bible study will begin again Friday, September 9th, 10 a.m. They're studying the book of Ephesians. Ladies, if you'd like to be a part of that, they would love to see you there. You see a few events uh, on the upcoming weeks here, September 10th, 11th, Fellowship Luncheon, Men's Meeting, uh, Members Meeting on September 11th. Ladies, if you're interested, on September 23rd, which is a Friday night at 6 p.m., Nancy Lee DeMoss Wagamuth is having a simulcast of her uh, national conference. It's, that simulcast is entitled Cry Out. They're going to be speaking about the necessity of praying for revival, praying and asking God to do a work upon the hearts and people, lives, churches of this nation, families. So that opportunity will be here. It's uh, on the Internet. You can find more information there at www.cryout16.com. Look inside your bulletin. You'll notice a leaflet there of a hymn that we will sing, uh, accenting the work of Christ for us, Hallelujah for the Cross, a beautiful hymn of faith that we have sung many times over in First Light. If you've not sung it before, you'll catch on quickly. You'll be able to peruse through there and see our order of service for this morning. I trust that it will be an encouraging time for our souls this morning. Thank you for being here. Let's begin now with a time of quiet meditation. I would suggest that we be praying during that time, or if you would like, you might turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40, verse 27 through 31, and prepare for the call to worship here in a few minutes. would please stand with me. And if you're not already there, Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31 in the Pew Bible, it's page 600, page 600. A familiar passage, but we don't 
not read things because they're familiar. We keep mining the riches. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Have you not, I'm sorry, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not Lord, these are incredible promises, and Lord, we see you speaking of yourself here, and how your understanding is unsearchable, and how you are the creator of the ends of the earth. And Lord, as we learn later in Mark about Christ's power to heal, Lord, Let us never forget that you have complete and total sovereign power over all things. And what a beautiful, wonderful thing that is, that we can know you. We praise you that you are the same God today, yesterday, and for forever. You do not change. There is no shifting in who you are. You are truth. And that truth remains. And Father God, as we open the book of truth this morning, as we sing truth, may it resonate within us. May it build us up. May it humble us as well. And we praise you that you have given us this opportunity to spend time focused on you. And we ask for your help now as we come before your throne. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Hymn number eight, praise to the Lord, the almighty, the king of creation.
next hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, I was looking through the hymns that we have selected for this morning. The first one, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, then What a Friend We Have in Jesus, Hallelujah for the Cross, and It is Well with My Soul. And I was just encouraged to read just those titles, and those could be a, a call inside of our hearts. Hallelujah for the Cross, we can be well in our soul, and what a friend we have in Jesus. Number 435. Well, we're going to take it to the Lord in prayer now, and we're reminded by that great hymn of the faith that we don't take it to just anyone in prayer. We take it to the friend that we have. We take it to the King of Kings. We take it to the Lord of Lords. We take it before the throne of grace because of the friend that we have in Christ. And we come now to a time of prayer where we would be confessing our sin. And we don't do this without hope. No, we actually have great hope because of the work of Christ for us. And so, because of our hope, we do go before Him in confession of our sin. Highlighting not only the fact that we are in sin, but that He was sinless for us. Highlighting the fact that we are not only sinful, but that God is holy. 
And we are actually able to approach that holy God because of the work of Christ for us. Let's go to prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. Now for us, a friend of sinners. And Father, that doesn't drive us to delight in our sin. But it does give us a grace, a means by which we can have our our sins relieved. Burdens placed at the foot of the cross. Heavy conscience, a heavy conscience made, made free, made light. As we see once again through the confession of sin, the abundant grace that you have provided for us. That grace which has covered all sin. And yet, Father, we come before you in confessing that to you, acknowledging the wonderful grace that has been provided for us. And once again, seeing the restored relationship. A relationship, Father, that has never been broken, that has never been withheld, that has never been held back from us by you. And yet, in our sin, blocking oftentimes the understanding of your love and kindness and grace for us. So we come, Father, in the spirit of 1 John 1, 9, to confess our sins. Father, we want to confess specific sin because you see specific sin. We don't want to be flippant about our sin. Father, we see the sin of selfishness in our life. We so often want to put ourselves before another. We've not lived with our wives in an understanding way this week. We've not spoken to our children or spoken to our parents or spoken to our teachers in a respectful way, in a loving way this week. We've gotten angry. Because our selfishness desires that we be worshipped rather than our selflessness pushing people to worship you. Forgive us, Father, for our selfishness. Forgive us for our unbelief. Father, our faith is weak when the object of our faith knows no limits, is is stronger than any strength that has ever been created, that is capable beyond any capability we know or can fathom or can access here on this earth. Forgive us, Father, for unbelief. And forgive us, Father, for our pride. Triggering these sins of selfishness, sins of unbelief, thinking that we know when we actually know very little. And instead of accessing the one who knows all things, we put our trust in our own understanding. Father, help us to lean not into our own understanding. Help us to not lean on our own pride, but instead in all our ways acknowledge you and you will direct and guide our paths. Father, forgive us for 
the way our pride has manifests itself in relationships and the way we think about even sin. We make it out to be less than it is before a holy God. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And yet, Father, just by the confession of this sin, we turn our eyes to the one who, who we should be looking at and who in worship of you, these sins fall away. In, in adoration and in meditating and feasting on the wonder of Christ for us, Father, seeing these sins become more clear and then fall away as we become more like you. Longing and looking for that day when because of your grace for us on the cross, we're able to sing for eternity the wondrous news of Jesus Christ, the glory and grace of God for us. Father, we thank you that you forgive us when we confess our sins. We thank you that we know that we have access before the throne to lay these sins at your feet, and we do so now. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen. The assurance of pardoning grace is found from Romans eight thirty one through 34. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also is interceding for us. Amen. Let's stand once again and turn in your hymnal there and your and your bulletin there to Hallelujah for the Cross. It's very unlikely that as Peter and James and John and Mary the mother of Jesus stood under the cross at times in the darkness that the word hallelujah was in their hearts or minds. But because he didn't stay on that cross, because we have the completed work of Christ, we can sing hallelujah for the cross.
495. I'm sorry. It is well with my soul, number 493.
Amen. Come now to a time of petition where we, because of the fact that Christ has been on that cross and as Christopher Well pointed out, is no longer there. And because of that truth, knowing that it is well with our soul, we are able to come before Him and we're able to bring before Him our needs and petitions because of His love and mercy and grace and delight in us as His children. Let's pray. Father, we bring before You these needs and requests and petitions for this body and for our community and for our nation and for the world around us. Father, I thank You for the gift of life that you have poured out upon this body, the little ones that are within the womb. We think of, Father, the Thompson family and the Rodriguez and the Ungers, the Webbers, the Turleys. We thank you for the the life that you've blessed these specific families with and even our body with. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get an education in this nation. And I pray for the students this week. And as they began last week, and many more will probably begin this week, I pray that you might allow the students within our body uh, to, to study hard, to work hard on their studies for the glory of God. That they might discipline themselves, that they might learn, that they might be faithful with the education that, that they've been given, and, and being able to see how that education helps them to understand even more of your glorious creation and of your attributes. Father, we want to ask that you would strengthen the marriages within this body. That you would allow these marriages to be a more clear, a brighter picture of the glory of the gospel. I pray, Father, that husbands would lovingly and with kindness and with gentleness and as a as as a servant lead their wife, that they would be faithful to wash her in the water of the word, that they would be faithful to live with her wife in an understanding way, to pray with her, to support her, to encourage her as a model of how Christ does so for us as his bride. And I pray, Father, for the brides of this body. I ask that you might grant them grace to love their husbands, to humbly submit, to support, to strengthen, to spur onward, to fulfill all the many one another's that are available to us in Scripture as an example of how we are to relate with one another. We ask, Father, for strong marriages, not for ourselves simply, but also for a picture to the world of your relationship with us as the bride of Christ. We pray, Father, for elders and deacons. We ask that you would raise up godly men to lead this congregation, this flock. Godly, faithful shepherds, true shepherds, not false ones, Father. We ask that you would bring men to this body that are not here and raise up those within. We trust that you will do so. 
Father, we pray for our local community. I want to pray specifically this morning, as we have many times in the past, for Faith Baptist. Father, a, a body that doesn't have a shepherd right now, a sheep without a shepherd. And I would ask that you would bring to them a faithful pastor, one who is able to love them and encourage them and strengthen them, one who is able to teach the word well, one who is able to, to counsel them and disciple them and equip them. Father, we pray for our nation. I think of um, two specific areas of our country that are suffering physically. I think of the flooding in Louisiana as many, many, many people have been displaced from their homes or lost all their worldly possessions. Maybe even lost family members or loved ones or friends through that flooding. I pray, Father, for that state. I ask, Father, for grace for the church down there as they would open the sanctuary or empty the coffers and feed and support and clothe and house those in need. And we ask, Father, that as in all of these physical difficulties that oftentimes come through natural disasters, that uh, this would be a ripe opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that the, the proclamation would go through uh, not just the word, but also be portrayed in how specifically, Father, Christians would support those that are around them in need. We pray, Father, for wisdom for mayors and uh, sheriff, uh, sheriffs and police departments and um, all of the different uh, disaster relief centers. And ask that you would give wisdom and grace and you would encourage those who are downtrodden even this morning. And we pray, Father, for those who have lost um, their homes and their land in California through the fires that have been ravaging that state. And we pray, Father, for much of the same as we have prayed for those in Louisiana. Father, we think of um, the nation, not only the nation, but the world at large. Uh, Father, we want to pray specifically for the country of Italy this morning, who is, is reeling from the earthquake that has in your sovereignty and in your full control come upon the specific areas of that country. Many lives having been lost, uh, many families and, and family lineage even completely changed, uh, much heartache there. And Father, I ask as the God of all comforts that you might comfort them in their affliction. Uh, we ask that you would give strength and even provision to the Church of Italy. Uh, Father, we pray for pastors there who probably are tirelessly working round the clock to minister to those who are within their own body and those that are without. We ask for safety for relief workers and those who are skilled in, in, in digging and search and rescue. And we ask, Father, if there are those that are still alive within that rubble, that you might sustain them. And keep them alive. And that through all of this difficulty, Father, that you might draw hearts and minds and people to yourself. Father, we thank you that we are able to bring before you our requests and our petitions. And we do so with great hope and with great joy. And we lay these things at your feet and we rejoice to know that you are sovereign over them all. That you are working and that you are, oh, as we wait upon you, we can trust that uh, we will see 
all how see how all these things work together for good one day. Even though many of these things are bad, we will see the way you will use them for good. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. If you take your Bible, I'd like to ask Mike Jumas to come forward. He's going to open the word for us to Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. Once you have found that passage, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Mike will read that passage, and then he will give offer a, a word of thanksgiving and prayer uh, before we go to the time of preaching. Good morning. If you are reading out of your pew Bible, we'll see the passage on page 840. The pew Bible titles the... Uh, Scripture passage, uh, Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again from the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Pray with me, please. Lord, it's with thanks that we come before you. Thankful that you are the Lord of the storms in our lives. Lord of our healing. Lord who is able to rise us up to new life. Lord, I pray that as we consider your word, that we would hear it. And by hearing, we would be made new. Lord, that your word would be quick in our lives, that it would cause us to wonder at you, that we would be your people amazed, that we would worship you in our lives, that our lives would bear fruit, that there would be the fruits of the Spirit through us. We thank you for this body. We look to what you'll do in Jesus' name. Come again to Mark chapter 5, last section here in Mark 5, and next week we'll begin Mark chapter 6. I trust this has been an encouraging study for you. Let me begin by setting a picture. Think along with me. Throughout life, oftentimes we come to a time when maybe we're, we're sort of cresting a hill on the road of life, as it were, and we come to face-to-face with a new opportunity. Maybe it's a trouble, a trouble with sin, or maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a relationship difficulty. And maybe it's not necessarily negative. Maybe it's actually quite positive. You're faced with the seemingly fork in the road. I've got two good opportunities here. Do I take this one or take this one? I need wisdom on what to do. Maybe it's a problem. In your marriage, or maybe it's a challenging child. Maybe it's an unbelieving friend or family member. Maybe for us that are still in school, it's a challenging subject. And whatever it might be, when those times come, I would imagine that you do probably what most of us do. What I would do is we sort of take a look around and we survey our options. Who do I know? What do I know? What do I have? What can I get? Who can I talk to that will help me get around this situation? And that's a perfectly normal response. In fact, in many ways, it's a biblical response. Looking around, seeing what are the means of grace that God has already put into my life that would help me overcome whatever's before me. I have a headache. There's an Advil. That's a tough subject in school. Maybe it's a tutor. But what if the situation before us is bigger or more severe than simply an Advil or a tutor might be able to fix? And we've probably all heard people say, and I've even said it, you've probably heard me say it, well, I've done all I can do, now it's in God's hands. 
As if to say, there's a point where God takes over and it's when I've done all that I can do. And now it's his job. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we we don't use the means of grace in your life that God has provided for the difficulties you may be facing. But isn't it when those means of grace run out or been used up that we get a real glimpse of whether our faith was rooted in the means of grace or in the God that has provided them to us? So how's your faith this morning holding up? Well, I trust this morning will, this passage will strengthen your faith no matter the quality or amount that you may have. If you look at your Bibles with me at verse 21, we have taken this passage and as is typically the case, we've divided it into three sections. We have 21 through 24 and then the second half of 24 through verse 34 and then we have 35 through 43. In this first section, we meet a man named Jarius. Christ and Jarius is the is the the title of this section, and we're introduced to this gentleman named Jarius or Jairus, a distinguished man of the cloth, you might say. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a respected and probably affluent man of the community. I think it's interesting the contrast of two very different segments of society in this passage this morning. It's quite stark and dramatic in nature. We have this outcast woman, which we'll see here in a minute, and we have this very well-respected leader in the community. One is an affluent person, and one is an extremely poor person. One was accepted, and the other was an outcast. One was well, the other sick. One had a family, the other alone. Both on opposite ends of a 12-year spectrum. 12 years is the daughter's age, 12 years suffering. Opposite ends of a 12-year spectrum that has brought them to a common converging point. Both with a need that no human being could possibly fulfill. I think in many ways it's a picture of us this morning of the church. The contrast is stark. We have those who are new in the faith, those who are mature. We may have those who make more money than those who make not as much money. We may have have those who are more well-educated and those who are less well-educated. We may have those who are very young in age and those who are older in age. We may come from this background and we may come from that background. And I think it's quite interesting that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all those differences, and your week is probably not involved with many of those differences. You're working around other people that do the same job you do, or maybe are clients that are interested in what you do. And yet you come to church on Sunday morning, and every one of those things converge at this one point, which is we have a need that no human being can fulfill. Notice why Jairus came to Christ. It wasn't what he could do for Christ. It wasn't his love for Christ that brought him. It was his need for Christ. And that need was the small seedling of faith that would grow in his interaction with Christ over the next probably minutes and maybe even hours. The fear that he had had for his daughter, the life of his daughter who was sick, drives him to Christ. That fear 
being, as it is even for us, often the seedbed for growing faith. And that small bit of faith of Jairus, believing that if Christ could simply touch his daughter, she would be made well. It wasn't much faith, but it was a strong enough faith that Christ acted upon it. But an even deeper level of faith was to be displayed here in the coming moments by the woman that Christ would then use as even a means of grace in the life of Jairus to call him to a higher level of faith than he has here in verse 23. And Christ, upon the request, goes with him. Jairus, having that small seedling of faith, probably now, maybe for the first time in maybe days, we're not sure how long his daughter has been sick, but he has a glimmer of his hope glimmer of hope that his daughter will be, can be, made well as they slowly make their way along with the great crowd that is now all around them. And probably a strong level of concern is within him as the speed by which he would desire to move to his home to see his daughter made well is not as fast as he would like. It's actually probably quite slow because of the throng that is around them. And just when it seems that it might be the day when his daughter would be healed, just as it, when it seems like faith has found some hope, the procession that he is in comes to a screeching halt. And we can only presume the amount of anguish and maybe even a bit of despair that may have flooded the mind of Jairus when Christ stops the journey to his home. It was a test of his faith. In many ways, it was the final test of his faith for this particular trial. We must remember, let us, the truth for us this morning, let us not grow weary in well-doing. Let us not give up hope when our hope seems lost. And you might say, but pastor, I am weary of not growing weary. You don't know my situation. There's not much left in the tank. And so I would simply ask you to take your eyes and look down at your Bible at verse 24. Because God has provided this next section in Scripture just for you. Christ and the woman, 24b through 34. And a great crowd followed him, thronged about him. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around and yet you say, who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace 
and be healed of your disease. This woman, she had been under great suffering, immense suffering for 12 years with a, from a loss of blood. It isn't clear in the text the cause of her loss of blood or discharge of blood, as the text says. It may have been from the womb, but we can't be sure of the cause of this loss of blood, irregardless how she had been suffering this. She had suffered tremendously for 12 years. And the woman had availed herself of all that she knew. She didn't know Christ, and she exhausted her own resources, as any wise person would do who is under that amount of suffering. Now, Jarius hasn't exited stage left, as it were, in this particular scene. He's right next to Christ, taking in the new developments on what he probably would have hoped had been a short journey to his home. And most likely, as a ruler of the synagogue, he would have known this woman. This woman was ceremonially unclean. According to Leviticus 15, 25 through 33, she had extensive restrictions on her life because of her illness. In fact, just the fact that she was in public and not only in the presence of others, but actually coming in contact physically with others was no slight matter at all. In a few verses, we look and we will see her come to Christ trembling in fear, certainly rooted in the saving power of Christ in her life, but also that fear and trembling having ties to the inappropriateness of her public presence. She wasn't supposed to be around Christ. She wasn't supposed to be around anyone. She was unclean. But this woman had heard about Jesus heard of the reports, and some would question that if we believe in God's ultimate sovereignty and salvation, is there no place at all for someone coming to Christ who desires to be saved? And I would say, according to this passage, yes. If you desire to be saved, come. This woman came, but notice she comes because of the drawing power of Jesus Christ. She's willing to risk all for the sake of being healed by Christ. Let's look at her faith. Her touch wasn't a pure faith. There was probably a pretty strong mixture of cultural mysticism that was widespread in that day. The mysticism tying the, the dignity and power of a person to what they were wearing. I could touch... So maybe some of the tassels that were on the edge of his garment. And it was tied more to what the person wore and less of who that person was. So her faith wasn't a perfect, well-rounded, well-defined, well-organized, doctrinally sound faith. In many ways, it was a fledgling faith, but it was a small faith. It was the faith of maybe even as small as a mustard seed. William Lane, in his commentary on the book of Mark, helps us here. Jesus possesses the power of God as the representative of the Father. Nevertheless, the Father remains in control of his own power. The healing of the woman occurred through God's free and gracious decision to bestow upon her the power which was active in Jesus. 
By an act of sovereign will, God determined to honor the woman's faith in spite of the fact that it was tinged with ideas which bordered on magic. Or we could say in short, it wasn't her faith that saved her. It was the power of God through Christ. And notice something quite interesting that we haven't seen in the book of Mark yet. It wasn't the word of Christ that healed her. He didn't look upon her and say, woman be healed. As he has said in previous passages of, in Mark. It wasn't his touch. The times before he's touched a person and made them well. No, he, he didn't touch this person. Through faith, the essence, the goodness, the power, the very nature of Christ entered her. The same happens to us even in our salvation. The same power that calmed that storm back in Mark chapter 4. The same power that commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man found in the beginning of Mark chapter 5. That same power entered her and healed her. And the woman, as we've already noted, stands in sharp contrast to Jairus. He's a man of strength. She's a woman of weakness. He's a man of respect. She's an outcast. He a clean man. She an unclean. She had exhausted all her resources. She had come to the very end. And you know, we can always be assured that God knows all that is happening in our lives. Down to the very molecule of this woman's body. Down to the very blood cell that was being discharged for 12 years from this woman's body. Down to the very hair of each one of our heads or lack of hair on our heads. He knows every one of those. He is in complete control. We've probably all known people, maybe even had the testimony ourselves of God having to take us to the very end of our abilities, our hopes, our resources, all for the purpose of bringing us face to face with the only hope we have ever truly had, the power of Christ. So we can say this morning, there is no one ever that is just beyond hope, that is just hopeless, that is beyond the saving power of Christ. We had no right, as this woman had no right to come to Christ, we have and had no right to come to Christ. We did not deserve to be healed. And yet Christ, in healing that woman's hemorrhaging of blood, displays for us the power of his blood. Being, in a way, hemorrhaged for us on the cross that we might be saved. That we might have the right, by his merit, by the hemorrhaging of his blood. And his death, and his burial, and his now resurrection and ascension to be in right relationship with God. Twelve years that woman's blood was hemorrhaged. And yet Christ on the cross hemorrhaging his blood. For not just that one moment, not just that one man, not just that one woman, boy or girl, but for all of us for eternity. Christ knows he's been touched in faith, verse 30. And this woman, 
who comes out of the crowd. You might see in verse 31, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. That Greek word for fear, meaning reverence or awe, combined with the courage and and gratitude of her healing, driving her to her knees before her Savior and the willingness to tell the entire truth of what she had done. And yet she not even knowing the whole truth of what had actually happened and, and how that had actually happened. But what she knew, she told in Christ, affirming to her the truth of what happened, thereby setting the record straight in her own heart and mind of the reason for her healing. It wasn't her touch that had healed her. It was faith in the power of Christ. Christ, three different times in this chapter, chapter 5, has come in contact with the unclean, the demon-possessed man, the unclean woman here, and here in a few minutes, the dead little girl, and he's made them clean. It is Christ alone to whom we can take our uncleanness, our sins, and find healing, find cleansing by his blood. You take your sin, you take your uncleanliness to anyone else, and you contaminate them. You take it to Christ, and he finds there is no contamination for him, and his cleanness is poured out upon us. So, if you are here today, and you think, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I get everything that it means to have faith in Christ. I certainly don't know everything. I don't understand it all. My faith isn't well-rounded like some of you people. My my faith, I, I I don't know all the words that you might know. This woman's faith was probably not as informed as she might have wanted it to be. She probably did not come fully knowing to whom she was coming, and yet she came. Maybe even had some errors in her understanding of Christ, but she came. And the Bible's response to us, if we're questioning whether or not we have the faith to go to Christ, is evidence in this passage that come to Christ. His power is what saves, not the strength of your faith. Not the quality of your understanding. It is His power, by His grace, through faith that saves. Little children, if you're under the sound of my voice this morning, Jesus can save you from your sin. He died on the cross to take the punishment that your sins require that you received. But He did not Remain in the grave and the simpleness of your faith isn't what saves you. It's the fact that Christ died on that cross, did not remain in that grave, but as the perfect Son of God was raised to life and is even now in heaven and there ruling and reigning. But pastor, I've got a question. So if Jesus has this power and ability, then why won't he heal my marriage? Why won't he heal my health? Why won't he help me with my bad attitude? Why won't he help me with my addiction, my wayward child? Is it because I don't have enough faith? And I think we've got to be very careful with that question. 
The question of the amount of faith can quickly slip into one's thinking about God in a, in a push-button religion rather than a loving relationship. Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, is well aware of your needs, whatever they might be. Is well aware of your circumstances. Is well, well aware of your, your disease. Your Christ has love for you beyond understanding. And so let us not allow the desire for, for a physical healing or circumstantial healing or a relational healing to distract us from the truth that God has provided for us the greatest healing that we could ever hope, ask for, or need. And that is he has healed us from sin. And therefore, in his infinite power and ability... If he has chosen at this time to not heal your situation, it isn't out of a lack of love or concern, but exactly because of his love and concern. He's interested in much more than your physical well-being. He's interested in your soul's well-being. And may in his perfect will allow a trial to continue for some time here in this passage for 12 years, for others more, but he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father bore thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus... He giveth and giveth and giveth again. It's not doubt in our trial, his love for you displayed upon the cross. Do not doubt in your pain by his grace that made, do not doubt in your pain his grace that made you alive. Do not doubt in your despair his care purchased by his blood stained and broken body. Oh, how he loves you and me. And may there be no doubt for that in our hearts and minds this morning. Indeed, you are his child. Look at the passage yet again. I find it so remarkable how Christ addresses this woman, daughter. And likewise, we are now healed of our sin in Christ. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. The wonder of the two very different emotions in this passage happening at the same time. The woman now filled with joy and yet reverent fear. She's in wonder, she's in amazement, and yet two steps away, Jarius, probably growing impatient, maybe with great concern, his faith wavering a bit. 35 through 43, Christ and the little girl. A delegation has come from the home of Jarius or Jairus to give the news that the little girl is now dead. And no more is there a need to trouble the teacher. 
And here there is a, a wonderful picture of Christ speaking probably to this woman who's in great joy on her knees before her Savior. Looking up at him in wonder and awe and joy and amazement. And yet Christ hearing just over his shoulder here, this delegation speaking to Jairus. And knowing the wavering faith of the man slightly behind him, he turns and he calls him as he calls you and I to a more radical faith, to a stronger faith. And certainly for us this morning and for Jairus, he doesn't call us to stronger faith without proof that he is all-sufficient and able. And so Christ calls the closest three disciples, Peter, James, and John. You see there in the passage of verse 37. He calls Jairus, Do not fear, only believe. Taking with Jairus these three men as witnesses, Witnesses to a resurrection in anticipation of his resurrection. This resurrection of Jairus' daughter must have echoed in the minds of Peter and James and John in the later years of their ministry following the ascension of Christ as they were strengthened by this work that they were about to witness in their faith in the hope that they would be with him again in eternity. And so they go to that house. And in this house, in that day, if there was someone who had died, it was customary to have professional mourners to lament the death of an individual. And Jairus, being a ruler of the synagogue, may have been expected to have quite a few, quite a, quite a band of mourners. And you see, really, in many ways, the disingenuous nature of their mourning. It so easily goes from mourning to laughter. Verse 40, and yet the child's mother, the child's father would have felt deeply the loss of their daughter and would have been mourning beyond mere pageantry. And that can be seen in how they respond here in a few minutes to her healing. They were overcome with amazement. Christ here once again calling for silence to what has happened. As he comes to this little girl, he takes her by the hand And he's so gently calling her to rise. Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Christ is not only Lord of the storm, he's not, not only Lord of the demonic forces, he's not only Lord of healing And sickness, he's Lord over death. And he calls for silence, charging them that no one should know this. No one should know of who he is, the Messiah, as has been witnessed by the three disciples and the parents. And they believed, others did not. The ability to understand the wonder of Jesus Christ as the Messiah in healing this little girl, raising her to life, comes by belief, comes through, the, through faith. Calvin is helpful here. Why then does he enjoy, enjoin silence on the young woman's parents? Perhaps it was not so much about the fact itself as about the matter of it that he wished them to be silent, and that only for a time, 
For we see that there were other instances in which he sought out a proper occasion. I do acknowledge that Christ did not perform this miracle without the intention of making it known. But perhaps at a more fitting time, or after the dismissal of a crowd, among whom there was no prudence or moderation, or we might inject no faith or belief in who Christ is as the Son of God. He therefore intended to allow some delay, that they might in quietness and composure revolve around the work, or or meditate on the work of God. Because we certainly know that this was told. We have it for our own benefit today. And he tells her something quite interesting. He says, give her something to eat. He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. He knows what she needs is food. She needs nourishment. She needs strength. And for us this morning, in our faith, he has provided for us food, his word, and the table, communion table, his body and his blood. There is great joy, even peace, that comes to our weary souls when we abide in the presence of the Almighty. When we sit at the feet of Jesus and drink and feast on his work for us. When we take in the wonderful words of life found in the Bible and allow that truth to wash over us and dwell in us. I don't want to end this morning without hoping and praying that you see clearly the power of Christ here. And yet you also see the gentle tenderness of Christ. He has the the power to still the wind and the sea by a word. He has the power to cast out a legion of evil dark forces by a word of command. And yet he heals the woman, the outcast, the rejected without a word, but only by his presence. And he deals with Jairus patiently and graciously, and he tenderly raises the little girl to life. And that's the Christ that you have. So the message for us this morning is the same as it was for Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. Take heart, Christ is, is ruling and reigning. Take Christ, Lord, He is take heart, Christ is Lord of, of all. Christ is well aware of what has happened in your life and what is still to come in your life today, this afternoon, tomorrow, this week. So how's your faith this morning? That's the question we began with. Is it is it well? Or maybe it's a bit weak. Maybe it's not as strong as you might want it to be. Maybe maybe it is strong. Maybe it is vibrant this morning. Whatever the degree of strength your faith may be this morning, I pray that this passage is is a shot of truth serum to your soul. That you are strengthened for this coming week by the wonder of Christ, your Savior and friend. And so I leave you this morning with the way that Christ left this little girl. He commanded that something be given to her to eat. And so allow me to feed you with two passages this morning. Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, 
who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. Our call to worship this morning. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, Father, we thank you for the fact that these two passages speak to the reality, the truth of our Christ. Our Christ. We thank you, Father, for the reality that is the ruling and reigning Christ. He is not on that cross. He's no longer in the grave. But he is sitting at the right hand even now of you, our Father, well aware, well acquainted with all that is going on in each individual life here, in each heart that is represented here. And he's interceding upon our behalf and he's, he's orchestrating all these things for our good and for your glory. And Father, I pray that this week we might be strengthened in our faith that as the little trials or the big ones might continue or arise, we might be able to recall the truth of your word to us this morning. That calls us, do not fear, only believe. Because that belief being rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the relationship with you, our Father, that is eternal and that is all sufficient. In Jesus' precious name we pray. would please stand with me. Our final hymn, O Church Arise, much has been made uh, lately of the leadership that our country is going to elect soon, and there has been much uh, assembling and pulling together of voters and who's going to get behind who, but isn't it wonderful that we can get behind Christ and Christ is perfect. Christ is going to lead us the right way every single time. We can have complete and total confidence in following our leader. O church, arise.
Amen. Benediction is from Jude 24 through 25, and I would encourage you to take a seat and meditate upon the truth of God's word as it was even reflected here in this final song that we sang. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's have a few moments of quiet and then the, the music will begin to play to close our service out.